Well, good morning, and again, as others have already said, happy Valentine's Day to you all on this beautiful, chilly morning. It is good to be here with you, and I mean that. Last night I had a dream that I woke up at about 8.35, and uh, I had gotten all of these voicemails from Pastor Scott and Jason wondering uh, where I was, and it was just kind of a nightmare, but it was actually only like 3.30 in the morning, and so... um, uh, so it worked out okay because it wasn't, but uh, I am a little sleepy today after that. It's, you know, what a, what a great fear that is to uh, be afraid I would miss out on seeing you guys, so it's good. I still would have, was here for the 9.30 and 11. In fact, as I recall, there were still a few of you who actually just stayed over to the next service. Wasn't that nice of you? Some of you went home, and I know who you are too. So again, this is all in my dream, but I just want you to know it feels very real to me right now. So uh, it is good to be here with you this morning. We're continuing in our sermon series of Grace Danger. And I just want to point out that, um, that throughout the rest of this year, we'll have some different um, images from time to time um, um, by, um, given to us by some ZPCers. And this is given to us by Heather King. And she, uh, she thought about this um, notion of grace dangerous. These are uh, one of their daughter's hands and, uh, that she then took a picture of and put this grace dangerous. And you have kind of the, the grace, the kind of the softer, as she said, kind of hand on the left-hand side there. Uh, and then the dangerous, kind of more like a fist, kind of this, this notion of this being a challenge and, and having to endure this challenge, um, ready to do that. And so uh, she submitted that, and so we wanted to put that up. It's so wonderful to have um, so many ZPCers that have so many great talents and gifts, of which I have absolutely none. And so I'm always amazed at the creativity of folks. And so thank you to Heather for that. And uh, we are continuing our look I, I, through the New Testament. I hope that you guys have been... Uh, doing your readings. And so this morning, uh, one of the readings this week week was from Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. And so we will read that passage now. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him, being Jesus, and what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one. For you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do come to you this morning in a sense of worship, giving you praise. Praise for the ways in which you lead us, in which you love us, in which you call us to come and to follow you. So we pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us, that we might hear from you and you alone. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So uh, recently I've had uh, some folks ask me um, whether or not I've been getting any 
uh, feedback uh, about the sermons that I've been preaching over the last two or three weeks. And, and usually when people ask that, that's kind of code for, um, have you been getting complaints? Um, which I appreciate people, you know, being concerned. And, uh, you know, I, I do have to say that as, as I've heard that, I've been wondering, you know, um, some of these passages really are hard. Um, and they're hard sometimes both to read and to listen to and to follow and, of course, to preach on. And so I've, I, I have wondered, well, maybe I should have picked other passages um, that might have uh, made things a little bit easier. But what I also realized as I thought about that a little bit more is whenever it is that you are preaching on Jesus and anything that Jesus does or says, there is a great likelihood that you are going to annoy people because Jesus has a great ability to annoy us at times. Jesus has a great ability to, um, to make us disgruntled, to frustrate us, to make us afraid, to make us concerned, to make us offended even. Uh, Jesus is, as we oftentimes say, full of love and grace to be sure, but there is a reason why Jesus was killed. It wasn't because he was just making people happy all the time and tickling their ears, right? That's not usually. Usually those are the people you want to cuddle up to. No, and so, in fact, then, oftentimes, as we continue to wrestle with the words of Jesus, we should realize that there are going to be times when we are offended. I'm actually uh, somewhat surprised at times, maybe I shouldn't be, but uh, about how people, uh, how Christians are surprised when they walk away from a worship service somewhat offended. Uh, I'm surprised at times, actually, when, when people leave a church because they've been offended by something that has been said about what Jesus has said. Um, it, it seems to me that actually we should probably be more likely to leave a church because of the fact that we feel like we have never been offended than because of the fact that we have been offended. I mean, again, there is a reason why they killed Jesus and if you leave every Sunday and you simply just feel better and you are never kind of offended or disgruntled about what has been said, there's a great chance that you're not actually hearing at all from Jesus. And sure enough, that's what we see again this week. We see people who are offended by Jesus. That's the passage that I read. These are people who are offended and want to find out a way to try and get rid of him rather than wrestle with what it is that Jesus is really saying to them. Now, before we kind of go into this, let's give a little bit of context as to what it is that's being talked about here. We're talking here about the imperial tax, the tax that goes to Caesar. So the, the Jewish people were not um, too excited about this particular tax, uh, probably for several reasons. One of them is that, you know, people like their money, right? And so they weren't too excited about giving that money away, especially for a group of people, uh, by and large, who were very poor. Um, that would have been a real struggle to have had to give away some money. It was typically about a day's wage. Secondly, they didn't really like it because in reality what they were doing was they were kind of paying the Roman Empire for the privilege of being oppressed and suppressed by them, right? So this is, you know, hey, thank you so much for taking over. Uh, thank you so much for, you know, killing some of our people and uh, uh, not giving us any say. And we like it so much that we want to pay you for the fact that you've done that, right? So that would probably not make too many people very excited. And then they didn't really like it because the imperial tax had to be paid with Roman money, 
And on, and on most, um, most of the Roman coins, there was a picture of Caesar, right? It was an image of Caesar. And it said on there, August son of the divine Augustus and high priest. In other words, it was implying that Caesar was divine rather than Yahweh being divine. And so for many of the Jewish people, um, using those coins at all or even touching those coins was blasphemous. And so they weren't too keen on paying this imperial tax. Now, what else do we have going on in this scene? Well, you have two different groups within this faith community who are pretty uh, polarized, pretty opposed to one another, uh, which should sound in many ways kind of familiar. Now, you have the Herodians on the one side and you have the Pharisees that are on the other side. And you can't completely make, you know, apples to apples with this is what it's like modern day. But in some sense, if it's helpful, you can think about it like this. The Herodians tend to be on the right side of the aisle, okay? And they were, uh, as one commentator said, they were kind of hyper-patriotic, you know? Um, they would have had the Israelite flag up in their synagogue, right? I mean, that, that's kind of who they were. And they would have been, you know, they were very, uh, they liked peace and order. That's what they liked. And so they had kind of become more aligned with the government. They said, okay, we, you know, we, we may not love the government in a sense, but we like peace and order, and they seem to help with that. Um, and we think that they give us a little bit of power uh, because we align ourselves with them, and that helps to make sure that we're not squashed, which is a good thing. Nobody wants to be squashed. So you have the Herodians on the one side. On the other side, you have the Pharisees, right? And, and the Pharisees are a bit more justice-oriented. We shouldn't be being oppressed. We shouldn't be being suppressed. And so they, they don't like it. And so they, 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 they were more fans of the revolts that were happening. And there were revolts from time to time um, um, against this imperial tax. Jewish people as they kind of, you know, said, hey, we don't want this. And so they would begin to protest. Sometimes they were armed. Uh, and, and so they were, they were more in line with that. And they were like, hey, you know what? We shouldn't be oppressed anymore. We should kind of break the chains. And so you had the Pharisees then who were kind of on the left side of things, if that's helpful. So you have these two groups of Jewish people, both within the Jewish faith, uh, and they were coming together, right? Which is kind of strange bedfellows in this particular scene. But as the saying goes, um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they decide to come together. Why? Because they don't like Jesus. They are in great agreement that they are not comfortable with this Jesus character. Why are they not comfortable with this Jesus character? Well, uh, he's kind of developed this following, and they don't really trust that. But also, uh, because of the fact that this Jesus doesn't fit nicely into their carefully crafted boxes. You see, the truth is that we all have our own little, call it what you want, call it a bucket, call it a category, call it a box, whatever it may be, we all have those things that where we like to put people into them. Why? Because it makes life much safer. It makes life much more comfortable. It makes life easier. As soon as I know that I can put you in a particular box, then I know whether you are with me or against me. I know exactly what it is you think and feel, which makes all of us then feel just a bit safer. If you think that, then I'll put you in the Pharisee box. If you think this, then I'll put you over here in the Herodian box. Everybody likes a good box. It makes life much easier. But Jesus was not easily following into one of those boxes. And so the Herodians and Pharisees had had enough. And so they decided that they were going to find out where they could place 
Jesus. And you know, if you want to give a litmus test to how you find out what box someone is in, you know what you do, right? You ask a yes or no question. Because all you have to do is within this mindset, a mindset, let me suggest, that was not just prevalent 2,000 years ago, but is certainly prevalent now, is that if I can get you to just answer this one hot-button kind of topic question, yes or no, then I can answer everything else, I think, about you. How do you answer to this question? And if you answer that way, then I know all these other things about you, and I'll put you there. If I ask you this question and you answer it like this, that's great. I feel like I know everything else about you, and I put you there. It is nice and neat and tidy. And that's what they decide to do to Jesus. Now, they, of course, uh, they don't just ask him that question like that. That would be far too obvious. And so they dress it up with kind of nice wrapping paper and a bow. Did you, did you hear it, right? Uh, basically, uh, we know, Jesus, that you are sincere. You teach the way of God in accordance with truth. You show favoritism toward no one. Now, tell us, what box do you fit in? That's not exactly what he says at the end, but that's basically it. And let's be clear, Jesus could have just given them an answer, right? He could have said, yes, imperial tax, no, imperial tax. But he does not do that. Instead, I love this, he basically says, I want you all to realize I know what it is that you are doing, right? I want you to know this. So he says, why are you putting me to the test You hypocrites. Jesus is saying, I see behind your mask, right? And and almost literally that's what he's saying. You probably know the word hypocrite comes from that ancient word for actor. And actors in that day and age always used masks, right? They used masks. And so he's saying to them, I see You, I see behind your mask. I know who you are. Now, when it comes to Jesus, we talk a lot about the fact that one of the things about Jesus is that he saw people that other people didn't see. He saw those who were hungry. He saw those who needed healing. He saw the lepers. He saw the women. He saw these people that were oftentimes unseen. But what we also need to realize, of course, is that what Jesus also did was he saw in those places where people didn't actually want him to see. That Jesus saw behind the mask that people thought they could hide everything from everyone. And so what Jesus is saying to the Herodians and to the Pharisees is, I know exactly who you are. I know what you were doing, which, of course, would have left them terrified. Now, for some people, I'm guessing, some of those Herodians or Pharisees, that just simply led to even more and more fear and more desire to get rid of Jesus. But for others, I wonder whether or not it didn't also draw them to him. We're told about Pharisees throughout the life of Jesus who from time to time would begin to follow him. And I I wonder if there aren't some of those who realize that because Jesus could see the real them that perhaps they were not somewhat drawn to him. What I have seen in my own life and in the life of others is that most of us hold both of these things in tension. On the one hand, we are terrified that someone will see the true, the real us. And on the other hand, we are terrified that no one will ever see the real and true us, who we really are. 
And so Jesus begins this whole conversation and he begins to adjust it. Just watch him. He begins to shift it away from this yes or no and away from this just imperial tax and he begins to shift it onto the lives of those who had asked the question. So then Jesus says, okay, give me a coin. Now what is Jesus doing Here Again, we have to pay attention to each little move. He could have just said, okay, well, here's what I think. He could have just said, okay, well, well, here's a coin. Think about a coin. Just just, just kind of think about a coin. They'd all seen a coin, but he doesn't. One of the things he begins to do is he makes them participate in answering the question, right? He doesn't allow them to kind of just stay from that safe distance. We like doing that when it comes to our boxes. We don't even have to get that close to people. We can just, you know, answer it from afar. He wants them to participate. But also, as scholars point out, by them simply coming up with a coin, he is is revealing the fact that they actually have these coins on them. That they actually have these Roman coins on them. That while they were trying to act as if they would never touch a coin, they have no idea about these coins. They think, of course, that these coins are horrible. That by their simply holding these things, by them having it somewhere, maybe in a pocket or in a coin purse, uh, as Dale Bruner points out, they reveal their own hypocrisy. They reveal their own inconsistency, if you will, with the simple fact that they both have it and that they hold it and are willing to give it to Jesus. Now, I think that's really important to keep in mind because one of the things that easily happens is that the more ingrained you are in your own particular box and in putting other people in their own particular boxes, the more, uh, the more that you are simply surrounded by your own echo chamber, by those who think exactly the way that you do, the more convinced you are that you are right the more likely you are to be inconsistent, to not be nearly as pure as you imagine yourself to be, and to be, as Jesus has already said to them, hypocrites, not nearly as righteous as they may appear, even to themselves. I think that's really important for us to understand, because if we don't understand that, then we will have opinions And we will have no humility behind those opinions. And we all wrestle with this, right? So let's think about modern day taxes if we can. Uh, I saw this story about a senator, this is several years ago now, who received an angry uh, letter from uh, from one of his constituents. It was um, from... Uh, from a, a gentleman who had been a war veteran, uh, and so he had come back from the war, and he'd gone to college, which was great. He got, went to college on the GI Bill. Uh, he then bought a house um, with a, a with an FHA loan. Uh, he then um, he started his own business with an SBA loan. Um, he um, he he had water, which was great. That was brought uh, to him through the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority. Uh, he had a father uh, and a mother, and uh, of course, and they retired uh, off of their Social Security, and they started a little farm, which was great. And the farm soil had been proven as being good and right and healthy by the U.S. DA, his father got ill. Uh, fortunately, there was some medicine that had been uh, uh, um, gotten kind of through a grant through the uh, NIH, the National Institute of Health. Uh, of course, it was also paid for then by Medicare. Um, 
And so they, this, this angry constituent then write a, a letter to the senator saying, I just want you to know that I am sick and tired of paying taxes for government programs that people just are ungrateful for. There's a bit perhaps of inconsistency there. A bit perhaps of not seeing how some of those programs were actually helpful to you. Now before you put me in a bucket, and I know that some of you, none of you here, but those on TV have already put me in a bucket, let me tell another story. Which is a good friend of mine whose boss, a former boss now, uh, loved taxes. I'm not sure he loved taxes, but he thought taxes were good and right, and high taxes even better. Why? Well, because he thought it was kind of a, he thinks it's a justice issue, and so he's very vocal about the fact that we should have taxes. Why? Because it provides so many things, especially for the poor. And so he would just go on and on. Like I said, very vocal everywhere. I mean, he was just he was a big advocate for the fact that we needed more taxes, that we should raise those taxes. Okay. But what my friend knew because he dealt with some of these things, is at the exact same time, this guy was also pretty much taking every single, doing everything he could legal, legal-ish, and illegally to try to shelter everything that he was making and everything that his company was making so that his taxes never actually went up at all. Now, that seems a little inconsistent, right? Perhaps a wee bit hypocritical, but this is what happens. My point is not on whether or not or how much taxes, how many taxes we should pay. My point is this, that no matter where you may be, whether you look more like a Pharisee or whether you look more like a Herodian, all of us, when we become incredibly convinced of the fact that we have to be right, all of us, when we easily begin to put people in particular boxes, all of us fall prey at times to our own inconsistencies, to our own, those own places where we are not nearly as pure as we want to think. All of us, myself included, I do that. I can see it and it frustrates me, but I try to hide it from people so that they don't see it. All of us, though, wrestle with that. And the problem, as Jesus was seeing these Pharisees and these Herodians, was that they were doing their best to try to keep their mask on so that nobody else could see it. And so Jesus, by simply having them provide this, is allowing others and hopefully some of them to see it. This fact that if we are going to have a stand on something, and we certainly, I am not suggesting that we should never take stands on issues, but I am suggesting that when we do so, we do it with an abundance of humility that comes from the fact that we realize that we are not wholly pure and certainly not as righteous as we would prefer others to imagine. So they come up with this coin. And Jesus looks at this coin and he kind of flips it around perhaps. And so then he simply asks this question, okay? Whose head is on this coin and whose title? So they tell him, well, it's, you know, this is, this is Caesar's. And he says, okay. So then he says, okay, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar. Now, actually, more literally, what he says in the Greek is give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And if we had more time, we could talk a little bit about that distinction because I do think it's somewhat important. But he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar. And you know, as soon as he says that, they think, ha, 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 all right, Whew. 
Finally, we figured them out. They pick Jesus up, figuratively, you know. They open up the box. You must be with the Herodians, we think. And they begin to put him down. But then what they realize is that it's not a period. It's just an ellipse. That Jesus is not yet done. Because then he continues and he says, but give to God what is God's. And just about the time they're going to drop him, they have to pick him back up from that box. And there he is. He's kind of dangling. And they're like... And they get more and more frustrated as they don't know which box does that answer. What box? Is, it, is he an imperial tax guy? Is he not an imperial tax guy? Until finally, and you kind of picture Jesus just, I do at least, just kind of smiling slyly. Finally, they just kind of drop Jesus down on the ground. And they walk away, amazed, we are told, with the simple fact that they did not, that they, of how Jesus had answered that question. Now, what exactly is Jesus doing with that particular answer? This is what I want us to hear this morning. And it's very easy for us to look past this. What Jesus literally says when he talks about the coin is not, who is this? It is, whose image is on this coin? And for the Hebrew people, if we've talked about, for these Jewish men that are sitting around there who are listening to this story, they know the Bible, especially the Pentateuch. From the time they were knee-high to a grasshopper, they were learning and memorizing the Bible. And as soon as they heard this word image... They would have remembered what one of the very first things they learned, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that says that we, that men and women, that we have been made in the image of God. So that immediately what they would have begun to hear and begun to wrestle with when Jesus said that is that what Jesus is saying to them is that you have been focusing, this question is focused on what I would suggest is the wrong question. You have been focused and worried so much about this particular hot-button topic that you are focusing on the image of Caesar. And because you have focused so much on that particular question, what you have begun to forget is the fact that you... And this Herodian or Pharisee next to you, whom you do not like and with whom you disagree, has also been made in the image of God. What Jesus is beginning to say to them is that they have forgotten. They have become so focused on answering this yes or no question. They have become so focused on this imperial tax. They have been so focused on this image of Caesar that they have forgotten that what is more important than how you answer any particular yes or no question is the fact that you and that those around you have been created in the image of God. And the image of God, let me remind you, as Karl Barth does such a nice job of pointing out, is that you, are, you have been created for relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with others. Why did Jesus not just answer this yes or no question? Why didn't he just answer it? Because he knew, 
He knew that if he did, they would immediately put them in a box. And as soon as that happens, as soon as you think that you have someone figured out based on their yes or no answer to a particular question, and it doesn't matter what the question is, imperial tax or no imperial tax, Trump or Biden, conservative or liberal, Purdue or IU. It doesn't matter which of those you answer. As soon as you think, oh, all I need is to have the answer to that one particular question, and then I have you figured out, then you no longer look at that person as someone who has been made in the image of God. You cannot be in relationship with people with whom you have placed in a box. It is impossible. Possible. It was impossible 2,000 years ago, and it is impossible today. Now, that does not mean that I don't think that there are important questions that need to be asked and answered. Think about this. Do you think Jesus doesn't actually have an opinion on the imperial tax? I would suggest that he had a real opinion, probably. He kind of probably had a good idea as to exactly what he thought, but he didn't answer it because he refused to allow them to put him in a place where then he could no longer be in relationship with them and where they thought that they could no longer be in relationship with him. What we need to hear is this. Please hear me. Because if we don't get this, we will be just like the world. Relationships are not the byproduct of being in the same political wing as somebody else. They are not the byproduct of being in the same theological wing as somebody else. They are not the byproduct in being able to answer every question in the exact same way. For Christians, relationships are a byproduct of being made in the image of God. For Christians, relationships are based in the fact that we are all rooted deeply in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And whether we like it or not, we are family. But that isn't easy. And it certainly isn't easy in our day and age. I can't tell you over the last, I was thinking, probably it's been five years, how many Christians, many within ZP, many ZPCers, as well as others, I have had conversations with where people have said to me, how in the world could Christians think like that? How in the world could Christians vote for him? How in the world could Christians be so stupid? There is at least a bit of good news, which is that this isn't new. Right? It's, it's all kind of a, a, you know, something that's been around at least since the Herodians and the Pharisees. And I think it is a real challenge for us. Let's just take it with ZPC as a whole to be in relationship with those with whom you disagree. Especially on issues that seem so very important. Not long ago, uh, I was talking to a pastoral colleague of mine who was at a new church. He'd been at a new church for maybe a year or two, so it probably wasn't new, new. And I just said, how, how are things going? What, what's that like? And he's like, yeah, it's going well. But you know what? I kind of miss the old church. And I said, well, why do, you, why do you miss the old church? It's a great church, I guess. I don't know. And he, and he said, well, they really kind of, they, they were all in the same place politically, 
and theologically. And so I could say whatever I wanted from behind the pulpit, and I just got amens. I didn't have to worry about getting any, you know, emails from anybody. I didn't have to worry about getting anything in the mail. You know what? Because I just said it. And if anybody new came along who didn't fit in that exact political slash theological wing, yeah, they, they realized pretty quickly that they were probably best to go somewhere else. And I tell you, for a moment there, we both just kind of looked off blissfully. You know, how nice. But here's what I've become convinced of which is that I'm pretty sure, and I could be wrong, that it is really hard for churches that are monolithic in their thinking to reflect the image of God. I think it is much more likely that as those churches continue just like that, they ultimately end up reflecting much more Caesar. They end up reflecting the image of a donkey, they end up reflecting the image of an elephant. They end up reflecting the image of something, anything, almost anything except for God. Because when you are in a congregation with people that have different thoughts, every time you have to decide, do I break relationship with that person? Or do I allow that opportunity, rather than driving me to anger, do I allow it to drive me to remembering whose image am I made in and whose image is that person made in? And the more that we are driven to asking not the question of whether or not I should give this image of Caesar to Caesar, the more we are driven to the question of in whose image am I made and in whose image is that person made made, the more that at our foundation we will be rooted, not in any political or other extreme, but we will be rooted in God himself. And so my hope and my prayer, and I think this is getting more and more difficult, but my hope and my prayer is that we keep being driven back to that. And whether it's somebody here at ZPC whether it's a family member that you have, whether it's a spouse that you have, because I see a lot of those splits, whatever it may be, that as you wrestle with these, whatever the important hot-button issue is that you are wrestling with, that every time you do so, you keep being driven back to that question. In whose image are they made? Caesar's? God's. And how does that then change our conversations? How does that change our relationships? Let us pray. God, it is difficult amongst all the voices that we hear all the opinions that swirl around both outside of us and inside of us. To focus on those things alone. Rather than remembering that first and foremost, those with whom we agree and those with whom we disagree have been created in the image of God. 
And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us. As difficult as it may be, for us to focus on you and to focus on the, those around us who have been created by you and who look like you. That doesn't mean that they always get it right, like it certainly doesn't mean that we always get it right. But the more that we as a church, the more that we as followers of Jesus can remember how we are rooted in you, the deeper we will be able to go, and the more of a witness we will be to the world that is around us. Amen.